0: Welcome back to Capture Q. We took the last few weeks off just to reflect, to read, to listen, and of course to create space for other voices that have often been marginalized or unheard. But today we are back. We hope that during this time, as you've heard other voices, that some progress is being made and that we can, from here on, contribute more positively. So today we're back, and we're back with Mo Amir. Mo Amir is a podcaster himself. He's also a columnist for Daily Hive, and he contributes regularly to the Linda Steele show on CKNW. He's had guests from Ed the Sock to Jagmeet Singh to David Eby, British Columbia's attorney general. He's had Coquitlam's mayor, Brad West, and many, many more. So I encourage you to check out his show, it is at this is Van Color on Apple Podcasts and uh, anywhere else you can find your favorite podcast. Welcome to the show.
1: Hi, how's it going?
0: Pretty good. It's so nice to finally meet you because we've kind of been, you know, in touch through Twitter and whatnot, and we've actually interviewed some of the same people.
1: Yeah, I saw that you interviewed Max Fawcett, mm-hmm. um,
0: Derek and, O'Keefe as well. And
1: Derek O'Keefe, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's a small city. So it is. Yeah, you run in the same circles. I find.
0: So I think I'd love to chat with you just about your kind of transition to you. You've started a podcast, which is doing really well. What made you decide to do that and to kind of just jump in and start interviewing folks?
1: It's going to sound super hokey, but I had a dream that I was hosting a podcast and literally the next morning woke up and I was like, hey, I think I could do that. And I think it could be pretty fun and I feel like I had a, a social circle where I could start bringing in some interesting guests of no of notability, I guess. And like anything, I just kind of started. I looked for a studio that I rent out, figured out how I would put it together and just didn't even think about it. I think that's sort of the, the trick is like, don't think too much or else you'll talk yourself out of it.
0: Mm-hmm, so I just went course. for it. Awesome. Because you have always been interested in, you know, everything from municipal politics to federal. Yeah.
1: And that's the thing. I've always had an interest in, I would say, just politics and culture in general. Mm -hmm. So I always try to keep up to date with what's happening both locally, but also internationally. And I figured, hey, if I could have a podcast that maybe interviews Vancouver personalities, I didn't see that in the space at the time. I did sort of look to see what was out there. Uh, You know, why not? And Mm -hmm. it's been two years now. Learned so much. The podcast has been doing well, but it still takes a lot of work. You think like it'll get easier and some things do get easier, but it still takes a ton of work for sure.
0: Yeah. Cause there's, I mean, you can, you can do a great thing and you know, you're a great host and you have a great nice. radio voice and you have such phenomenal guests. And I think the one thing that people don't really realize is a lot of, you know, radio shows, they have a marketing budget and often, yes. you know, <laughs> you and I both know it's, you know, how do you, how do you get it out there? How do you get those voices out there? Right. So. Yeah.
1: And, and you know what? I, I love AM radio. I love talk radio. Before Rogan, the the real long-form guy was Howard Stern because mm-hmm. he'd have a guest and talk to them for like almost an hour, maybe even yeah. longer. And right now, talk radio, and it's not a slam on their format, but right now, their segments basically break off into 15 minutes, and that includes the ad break.
0: Mm-hmm. So if you get
1: a double segment, then it's almost half an hour. Yeah. And that's fine, but that's really hard, I feel like, for the host. That seems like such a challenge where And for 15 minutes, you have this really super emotional, tragic thing, sad thing that you're talking about. And then you have to switch gears and talk about this super light thing and Mm -hmm. then switch gears and talk about this political thing. And it's a, I mean, I admire them and how they do that. But for me, I just like this idea of like, let's deep dive into one thing or one person Mm -hmm. and just kind of let that flow organically without these restrictions. So I actually, and I've done a, a bunch of radio hits which I always find are like super stressful because you have to get out all your points in this short period of time mm-hmm. and you don't want to sound too stupid, but you don't want to take too long to explain something. Whereas when you're having a conversation with some, with someone, mm-hmm. it's a lot more relaxed.
0: I grew up on Noam Chomsky and I remember him always saying that it's, you know, the 30 second sound bites, they take out all the context, right? So yeah. if you have to <laughs> say something really, you know, that may sound out of context, quite stark, then you don't get the time to explain it, which I think is why podcasts and, you know, Joe Rogan and all of that type of, you mm-hmm. know, interviewing tends to, it brings in more people who they want to know more. They want to understand yeah. not just that sensational one tidbit, right, that they have to edit yeah. around. And,
1: and TV is even worse, Like you look at the sound bites in TV, they're literally like three seconds, right? They're even worse than radio. And
0: everyone's, you know, on a panel, you have four people, but they all have 30 seconds to get there, yelling over each other and whatnot.
1: Yeah, so much theater, so much like kabuki theater in some of those panels. Mm -hmm. Even some of the good ones, you know, how much content you actually squeeze out of it. Maybe a couple of points from each guest, but not a huge deep dive into a topic or into a person. Mm -hmm. And... I'm totally fine with that because that's what I do. And that's what I try to do is have these long form conversations, have ask them questions and have them explain ideas that they normally wouldn't have a chance to do. And I think especially the political guests see a ton of value in that. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how the show's progressed where like every week I get different politicians from different levels of government being like, Hey, I should come on the podcast to, to talk to you. But I still stick to, and I'm privileged and and fortunate to be able to say so, but I stick to people that I'm really interested in. It doesn't mean I agree with them. It doesn't mean that um, if it's a politician that I want them to be in power necessarily, but it's like someone that I really want to have a chat with. Mm -hmm. And so if it's, and unknown, and even if they have a good pitch, you know, it's a lot of times I'll just kind of pass. Yeah, yeah. But if it is someone I come across that I'm like, oh, I need this person on my show, then I will uh, beg them in yeah. a lot of cases. Lot of-
0: <laughs> Which is how it goes sometimes, right? Sometimes, but, yeah. yeah. I, I, I like the idea of, you know, you're – because everybody, and especially millennials, we're all – sick and tired of politicians having this you know elevator pitch and these you yeah. know fluffy words they use and you know they're giving a speech that maybe they didn't write and i think in in sitting down with someone yes it benefits them but it also benefits someone who's more interested which is actually a question i wanted to chat with you about you interview Jagmeet Singh yeah and he you know he's that very... was one
1: i had to beg for <laughs> <laughs>
0: well and i'm sure he's got 25 communications you yeah. know almost doors to go through right (laughs) um he on your podcast said kind of in response to this whole um the government just came out saying that they are going to issue penalties and fines and possibly imprisonment for folks who have collected crb and maybe did something Uh, maybe they pressed you know you have to press a bunch of buttons and maybe they pressed one that didn't exactly fit like you know they have quite a few vague um options you have to click um I like that he came out and he said, "Hey, let's stop talking about jailing people right now, especially with the discussion that's going on in the states and and you know for nonviolent crimes especially. Not only that, you're by penalizing CERB recipients, you are you know penalizing poverty in a way.
1: Yeah, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, and I'm plugging my podcast, so listen to it after you listen to this. But when I had Nora Loretto on, we had a really interesting conversation about the SERP, and Nora is very left. Whereas I think I'm a little more centrist. Maybe I lean a little left. Mm -hmm. And I asked a very basic question, which was, why didn't they just cut out checks to everyone? Mm -hmm. Because if you're a high income earner, you're going to pay back your $2,000 or $6,000, whatever it is, through taxes. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Instead of making it simple and cutting down on administration and just cutting out checks, the liberal government chose to make it super complicated and weird and you had to have earned at least $5,000. So it is cutting out the poorest people. And then you have to think about people with disabilities. They're being cut out. Like it was this weird scheme that they made. Mm-hmm. And now they make this scheme. And of course there were going to be people that try to game the system. Like that's just how the world works. Mm-hmm. But if they had kept it simple and then taxed the high income earners afterwards, they would have had a lot less fraud as well. Mm -hmm. And they would have a lot less cost in terms of chasing down this fraud. And now they're saying, okay, we're going to do our due diligence and we're going to chase down people who, um, who took advantage of the system. It didn't even have to come to this point, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. if they had just made it simple from the start. But I absolutely agree with, um, I agree with Jagmeet saying that it's interesting that we're having this conversation about policing and who is targeted in policing and investigations mm-hmm. and the Liberal government is also rolling out this thing that they're going to punish uh, people who again who might have filled out the forms incorrectly
0: hmm yeah and I think it is it kind of opens a whole dialogue on why are we penalizing people who are nonviolent um, whether it's a drug-related crime and uh, I'm the first one to say that I'm I'm no fan of you know people who are Especially with what's happening in the city, you know, selling drugs and, and especially, you know, drugs laced with fentanyl. I'm absolutely, you know, I'm for trying to, to make sure that that's not happening too much. Yeah. But at the same time. Predatory
1: dealers. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. At the same time, you know, who are we actually throwing behind bars?
1: That's an interesting one because here's the thing. I agree with you. I certainly think that someone in prison for, like someone should not be in prison for drug possession or drug Mm -hmm. use. Mm -hmm. When you get into dealing, yeah, it gets a little more complicated than that. I want to see more white collar criminals in prison, mm-hmm. right? It's mm-hmm. technically nonviolent, but it's like when they're doing things that are manipulating markets or, you know, costing people their life savings. Yeah, they should definitely mm-hmm. be in prison. Yeah. So that's why I'm very hesitant to say, um, don't, pr- uh, don't put people in prison who haven't committed nonviolent crimes. Cause those are some people that I think. Absolutely need to be in prison.
0: Interesting. yep. Yeah. Uh,
1: and I'm sure there's a case for why they shouldn't be. But I think crimes of that nature are already undercharged and under prosecuted. Of course. So uh, I feel like when we, when we say, okay, no prison for nonviolent crimes, the people that are going to benefit are going to be the richest the ones getting
0: away. Interesting. Yeah. And, and it is kind of, you know, the solution for that, for the white collar crime and for people, you know, offshore accounts and all of that, mm-hmm. we need, we need to go after those crimes as well. And mm-hmm. we need to make sure that those people are taxed and that we benefit from those <laughs> tax dollars, which seems to be, I don't think anyone disagrees with the corporation who pays $0 in taxes has to, you know, there's another person who owns a small business and how much are they paying in taxes? Yeah. And it's not fair. Um, yeah. The, it, that's an interesting point. I'm glad you brought that up because it, <laughs> it's never, it's never black and white. It's gray. It's nuanced. There's, you know, a lot of arguments there. Um, you just mentioned actually in terms of crime, I, you, a long time ago, you had Brad West on. Yes. You've had boy, him on more, more than once. And we actually, I I really value him. I think he is brave in today's world in in saying things that, potentially could be framed in a different way. And mm. I think that his his willingness to discuss these issues, so if we look at Sam Cooper's reporting, yeah. I recommend everybody check out his series. I think it's called Making a Killing, um, something to do with fentanyl. Brad West having opinions on how do we go after these massive, massive drug dealers who are bringing in fentanyl? Do you have kind of anything to say about him and, and that work? <laughs> And what you're seeing maybe even today that's going on hasn't been in the news much.
1: So I'm big defenders of Brad West, and I'm a big defender of Sam Cooper. They have always been very clear. They separate Chinese government activities, Chinese mob and gang activities from Chinese people. Mm -hmm. And they are very clear about that.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: unfortunately what you see is that they get tagged with being racist and they get accused of conflating Chinese people with Chinese government, Chinese people with Chinese mobs. And they don't actually do that. Mm -hmm. And anytime someone has said, well, you know, their rhetoric is wildly irresponsible. And what they're doing is painting broad strokes for all Chinese people. I've said, where show me Mm -hmm. where they've said that. Yep. And the truth is no, anytime I've had that conversation with someone, No one has been able to point something out. And I I don't say show me on the spot. I said get back to me in two days. Find where it is. Mm -hmm. Because Brad gets very angry. And I think he is rightfully so Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Especially when it comes to Canada-China relationships. We also have to remember when it comes to Brad West, he is a steelworker. And Mm -hmm. he is unabashedly a steelworker. And one of his things as a steelworker and one of the you know U.S. steelworkers – Ideas is that they don't want labor jobs shipped over to China. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of industries that they feel can come back quite readily to North America. So obviously he's going to be upset and not uh, approving of the Canadian Canada-China relationship. When it comes to Sam Cooper's reporting, this public... Inquiry into money laundering would not exist without Sam Cooper.
0: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Like this, it
1: was not government that was finding out things. It was Sam Cooper, it was John Hua, uh, Eric Rankin from the CBC. There was a few different reporters. uh, You know, you could could throw Kerry Gold in there as Mm -hmm. well and Ian Young. Like there's a group of them, but Sam Cooper really was on the- Did the meat of the work. Yeah, forefront Mm -hmm. of the money laundering stuff. And- he is actually a dream guest of mine. Global won't give him uh, clearance unfortunately. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Because they I, want I to keep him I think he's brave as well. Mm-hmm. What's that?
0: I think he's brave as well. I, the uh, kind of the the vitriol and and we've seen he's been, you know, invested They're coming after. By, uh, <laughs> him.
1: Yeah. I mean I mean that's what you have and I don't mm-hmm. know if it's United Front or if it's just different mm-hmm. groups whatever's behind it but they are coming after him and they're going to come after West and
0: mm-hmm. these
1: people And when you look at who's coming after them, it's finance guys and real estate guys Mm -hmm. and everyone who are benefiting from these loopholes where you and I don't benefit from.
0: Of course. It reminds me, you you just said something there where you said the investigation and the public inquiry and, you know, everything that kind of unfolded from Sam Cooper's reporting – it reminds me a lot of Julie K. Brown, whose work in the Miami Herald led to the FBI investigating the Epstein scandal and leading to that and tons of reporting, Ronan Farrow, yeah. um, you know, Harvey Weinstein, all of all of the reporters that decide to go, hey, nobody's really looking into this. Maybe I should take it a step further and then.
1: The floodgates, yeah. And you realize that it's not only it all unfolds, it's all been happening under our noses, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that's not to take away from, you know, the sources and the work that Sam Cooper does. I mean, his work is amazing. But he's uncovering a lot of things that people had been suspecting for years in British Mm -hmm. Columbia, which was a lot of drug money or hot money in Vancouver, a lot of it being wash through real estate
0: mm-hmm.
1: there's still that denialism that apparently this doesn't exist but i mean his work has brought that and legitimized that idea of like yeah there's some weird stuff that happened yeah. in, in the last 5 to 10 years in
0: mm-hmm. this city you had um you just spoke about mental health and you wrote an article in the daily hive and yeah. congratulations on that gig as well you, Thanks. you're writing yeah, that's writing a lot of fun. for them yeah really cool um a thing that I find, you know, to switch gears entirely into 180 sure.
1: here. We can, I mean, we um, can talk about my boy Brad West all day. but I could we absolutely. Can, we can shift gears. <laughs> yeah, sure.
0: they they're both doing great work. But the idea of, and, and this kind of goes into CRB, and it goes into the state of the economy right now. I mean, we're seeing. I've talked to one person who said there was a spike in in economic related suicides. Um, is there maybe a solution here where we can go? Okay. We have a lot of isolation which creates you know that can onset depression. It can do yeah. so many things. We have economic instability, so that's you know suicides and you know mass depression. is Is there a solution where we finally look at all of the research backed you know the from CBT to EMDR to even just traditional talk therapy. Do you think in your opinion that we could start funding mental health under our health care? Given what might come out of this pandemic.
1: Yeah, I think we have to. I think that has to be at the forefront of the health resources after the actual after actual COVID. Right. And someone called it a, a, an echo pandemic mm-hmm. in the sense that it's like the echo from the pandemic. We know that when unemployment goes up, the rate of suicide goes up, goes up with mm-hmm. it. Things like domestic violence goes up based Absolutely. on the rate of unemployment. So you're going to have these, we can call them mental health issues or domestic issues that come up as a result of the economic downturn. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to have mental health issues that come up as a result of the social isolation. Mm -hmm. And in the interview I did with Hillary McBride, I mean, she she had a very interesting take. She said, you know, some people who were already going through therapy or maybe were well-adjusted they really had the resources to cope with what was happening. Mm-hmm. Some people even flourished because either they needed, you know, they realized that they were in a shitty job. And mm-hmm. when, once they left their job, they realized they, they could do something else.
0: One that was really neat was people not having FOMO. They stopped seeing everybody on vacation and buying new houses. And-
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. So the, they. There were yeah. so many different offshoots, and everyone is going to take it differently. But certainly there were some people who have never experienced that stress of isolation in a destabilizing way before. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we keep talking about mental health and it's almost become this buzzword Mm
0: -hmm. that corporations
1: like to throw around and bell likes that one day (laughs) which is fine like it's Mm -hmm. nice that we are taking the stigma out of it but i think from a policy end we absolutely have to invest in mental health and this is the conversation that's also being had around defund police should police be going to mental health calls? Why have they been going to mental health calls when they don't have any training in those fields? Absolutely, They should at least be accompanied with someone who is an expert, right? Yeah. Or a social worker, that type of thing. So I think just our in general, our, our culture talks a big game about mental health. But I think on a policy level, we still have to... Uh, create those supports for mm-hmm. a lot of people.
0: Cause I think you're right in, in the way that corporations talk about it and, you know, ending stigma and all of that. I, you know, so many millennials, they go, Hey, we're, we're good at talking about this actually. Now we're really good at talking yeah. about when we experience depression or anxiety. And it's, it's pretty, you know, out there in the open, what we need is a solution, what we need is funding. What we need is access to treatment.
1: I had a friend that was looking for, A counselor, effectively, and she ended up finding a decently priced one, which was sort of subsidized, but then there's a cap on how many sessions you can have with them. Mm. So, you know, stuff like that is like, okay, is that useful at the end of the day where what if you need more than your 10 sessions or five sessions or whatever it is, then what do you do?
0: Well, and also picking and choosing a therapist and picking and choosing a treatment. There are so many out there that are yeah. effective in different ways for different individuals and, you know, different administrators. They they work with all types of personalities. So you kind of do need to give. It's like finding a GP. We're able to pick and choose to a degree, maybe not in the city. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it, it almost should be like that. Um I'm not a policy analyst. So. No, no. <laughs> but either. yeah, it's a neat. Uh, I, I hope and and you know what we're seeing in the states is this debate over coverage, and they are including mental health if they're going to shift gears. If the Democrats eventually do anything, um, then they can get that right. So
1: yeah, I think that that has to be covered. I think, I mean, even in our, in our country, pharmacare, dental care. Mm-hmm. I think the, we have to push towards having these things covered Mm -hmm. um that is that is the idea of progressivism as the whole social safety net
0: yeah
1: right Mm -hmm. and if the cost of living is going to increase as it continues to increase whether it's housing or whatever else we have to make sure that the basics are covered for everyone
0: Mm -hmm. and you sound a lot when you you were talking earlier too you remind me a lot of andrew yang who he in terms of of that you know what if if housing is going to keep going up or eventually we do need to provide a bottom line because people are going to lose their jobs. And it's just.
1: Interestingly enough, I'm not sold on UBI as much as I had that consideration for the Serb. And I think it was important. And I think there should be no barriers. it should have cut it out to everyone. I'm not a a time
0: of crisis. Yeah.
1: That was for a time of crisis. I'm not a big UBI guy because I think the government and the States then almost, Abdicate their responsibility to take care of people. It's like, well, we've been giving you $2,000 a month, so I'm sorry you can't go to the dentist and your mental health counselor and this. You know, so there's stuff like that. I think it just feeds into the overall neoliberal model.
0: Of course. It's funny you brought that up because I asked a person about, you know, they supported UBI, and I said, but so what if a one-bedroom in Vancouver is average $2,000 a month, which is outrageous for so many people? What if now it's 3000 Because, hey, everybody else has $1,000 to spend. How do you, you know, you can't just give someone money and then expect the market to not react. <laughs> you know, what that if people says, just increase <clears throat> their prices because, hey, everyone has more money to spend.
1: I think that's exactly it. And and that's why I prefer a system where your basics are covered to mm-hmm. keep you healthy.
0: Through services, more Through so? services, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah,
1: as opposed to just... Straight up cash. Mm-hmm. Plus the problem becomes there's a like a moral hazard, not in the sense of giving money to anyone, but a moral hazard in the sense of future elections. Mm-hmm. So then you'll just have politicians say, well, I'm going to give you 5000 The course. next election, the next elections, will say, oh, well, I'll give you 10000
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: and so you're not even debating policy yeah. anymore. Mm-hmm. It's just who's going to give me more per month. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I just don't, I don't see it. Being a practical solution, I think certainly, yeah. In terms of prices, it it was great, but it's not something I've mm-hmm. i yet to be convinced over.
0: I like what you just said about you know politicians saying, "Oh well, then I will do this or I will do that," because one thing that. I really loved about the last podcast you had with Mead is he said, you know, in, in this huge dialogue around racism is that, and this is, you know, I've always been very left. And I think one thing that I, I don't really understand right now, about the left is that we look at, you know, in terms of the, just say no to drugs campaign, Mm -hmm. we said, Hey guys, just say no to drugs. And then the left and progressive said, Nope, that's not going to work. You're not going to tell someone just say, you know, just don't do that. And if you do that, you're morally wrong. and, you know, you should be punished and shamed. What they did is they said, Hey, people are going to use drugs. Let's find out why. So I find this, you know, with Jagmeet saying, Hey, with racism, we need to discuss not just, you know, shutting people up and saying that's wrong. We need to discuss the root causes Mm -hmm. of racism. Why are they racist? Why are they feeling this anger and hatred and animosity and, and spouting this vitriol at people? Um, not to validate it and not to say that it's right or that we should be giving, you know, is that something that we can start to have more of a dialogue on and say why are they feeling this way? Is that is that something that I don't I don't know, do I don't know
1: the- what the alternative is? Or do we just start casting people off as evil and you know I I I I can't remember which politician it was, but it was someone in North America who said. You know what interests me is why people become terrorists, and this was sort of in the Bush era. Yeah, and everyone was like, "Oh my God, blah, 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 you're humanizing terrorists." Yeah, and I don't think he was like humanizing terrorists. He was just saying, like, "Are there other dip? Are there other things we can do to support places so that you don't have the type of unrest that leads to terrorism?" Of course, right? yeah. And is it is it you know viable to do that? Mm-hmm. Because war is still expensive, mm-hmm. and I think we need to look at that with regard to racism, with regard to these fucking incels. Like mm-hmm. what, what, what is creating antisocial behavior? And a lot of it has to do with opportunity. I mean, and, and see, even this, I feel weird saying, cause I don't want to exonerate.
0: Mm-hmm, of course. What
1: these people are doing, but a lot of it has to do with education, economic opportunities, mm-hmm. services that people are available to. Mm -hmm. I mean, you look at these incels, right? They are fucking sad, pathetic, gross people.
0: Absolutely.
1: But I don't want to live in a society that just completely ignores them. Like, maybe they should have services to mental health. You know, are they completely lost? I, I wouldn't be surprised I don't know if there's any studies done on incels, but certainly with hardcore drug users, I mean, there's so many studies that link trauma and early childhood course, trauma yeah, to these right. things. So why not provide people with services in hopes that mm-hmm. they will heal and they will get better as opposed to, you know, just like in the case just of getting drug them. users or whoever else, marginalizing them or ignoring mm-hmm. them or pretending that they don't exist. So... It's idealistic, maybe, but...
0: You, you draw a picture that makes so much sense to me in the way that if you want to just say, I mean, terrorists have done horrible things. You look at Daniel Pearl, you look yeah. at, I mean, gosh, absolutely, nine eleven, everything that has happened. But when we look at why... Why, why do, why do they do this? Then you have to address certain things that are very uncomfortable and probably not very (laughs) easy for politicians. They, they like the status quo. Yeah. And so similar with, you know, I I like how you framed it in antisocial behavior because it can encompass a lot of things. Um, why, why are they doing that? And, is that going to make us, rather than just saying this is bad and we should tell them they're evil and cancel them and never hear from yeah. them again and <laughs> shove them away in a closet and hope they don't come out. And people are getting canceled
1: over some stuff that isn't that bad. And, I, and again, this sounds controversial now, but there was this woman, uh, Alison Roman. She was this American cook. And the, some Yasher Ali, who's a very famous Twitter guy. Yeah. Leaked this photo of her wearing hoop earrings and what looked to be a, like a, what he calls chola outfit, oh, okay. a Latina girl mm-hmm. outfit. And she says she was trying to look like Amy Winehouse. Oh, okay. This is a chef. This is a cook. And she said, you know, I didn't even realize that hoops were associated yeah. with Latinas. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not the costume I was going for. Maybe it is, maybe it wasn't. But again, it's like, you're pulling this thing up from... 10 years ago where people apparently at the time didn't care was it bad yes but does it deserve like a full cancellation I of course
0: know. yeah
1: like doesn't intent doesn't intent play a role in mm-hmm. terms of what you do
0: there there was a similar story with uh, bon appetit magazine just recently a bunch of people i mean their editor-in-chief has atrocious behavior and he just resigned um after uh, he was dressed very offensively as a you know I forget what the term is, but essentially mocking Puerto Rican people. Right. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and that photo went viral, but then a bunch of other people who...
1: Chrissy Teigen and John Legend wore a, a Native American outfits. No one was canceling them, right? Like it, it, we were starting to pick and choose who we're canceling based on what, they, mm-hmm. what they've done. And I think some of the stuff, we do have to look back and say, hey guys, relax. Like there's... Yeah. There are movies that you and I probably laughed at in the year 2000, which was 20 years ago, that we would not laugh at today.
0: Of course. Right? Of because course. we have
1: evolved. The culture has evolved.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Are we going to be held guilty for laughing at, you know, the homophobic jokes in The Hangover? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you of course. Know? Of but course. Yeah. I just – and I think The Hangover is actually more recent than that even. But, but you understand my point. It's like we're holding people – and canceling people over the smallest shit, whereas we can bring everyone together and have conversations about why this stuff is bad.
0: And that's absolutely where where I really I like the idea of having dialogue and you know, for so much of my life being on the left and only reading leftist scholars and authors. Then finally hearing an argument that I didn't have any comeback for, that was a very, you know, Mm -hmm. well thought out argument on the right. And I thought these aren't all just backwards, Dick Cheney loving hillbilly, you know, anti whatever. And to have to, to not open the dialogue, I think is going to be our biggest fault. And I think Mm -hmm. Twitter (laughs) doesn't help with that, but I do like that when someone does something so offensive. I'm proud of the Me Too movement. I think it's Oh you know, for sure for we're talking about
1: crimes there. For and sure, we're talking exactly. about yeah. threatening
0: and, people. And there are that exon- be
1: Yeah, you're fucking canceled. Like Weinstein
0: and there are really Cosby, bad, yeah. um, you know kind of fallouts from that where innocent men are are being, you know, even even just on social media being called out for something they didn't do. So there are you know, it's a bumpy road, but mm-hmm. at the same time, I think we do need to have that dialogue. And I think that, you know, like you said, it's it, open, open it up and talk about it, and don't just <laughs> pretend it's not going to happen. <laughs> you, you
1: know, what's so crazy? We were of the generation that pushed back against blaming Marilyn Manson and music on the Columbine shooting. Yeah, we were the generation that pushed back against. Again, like video games and bad music and certain movies will corrupt young minds, Mm -hmm. right? We pushed against that. And Mm -hmm. now we're kind of... Liberals (laughs) used to be
0: open-minded. Yeah, and now we're doing this
1: thing that we want to shut everything down because it's problematic. Again, I think there's a great dialogue to look at the past, to look at past media, whether that's film or video games or whatever, and say yeah, you know what? Maybe that wasn't correct. Mm -hmm. Let's have a conversation about it as opposed to demonizing everyone that ever engaged in that media or in that culture. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is more important than just saying, no, you're a terrible person because you listened to this song or watched this movie Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. you like this celebrity. Unless it's R. Kelly, then you're a terrible person. Yeah,
0: then turn it off. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. The dialogue that is happening, um, you know, it's very emotional because some horrible things are happening and it's very kind of knee-jerk. And so the hope is that you've got Joe Rogan, who talks about this all the time, with 160 million downloads a month. These people are going somewhere. You know, people who want to hear, quote-unquote, the other side or a different opinion are still there. They still exist. They're yeah. still finding media. They're creating media and they're growing. Joe so I Rogan think is that- probably
1: the most... Influential media person in the United States, and, and I would
0: viewers in CNN. Yeah, yeah. and
1: I, and I would say who is more influential than him, right? Now? Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and we can't
0: discount kind of why why people are going in that direction and yeah. wanting to hear those conversations because you know, like you're saying, cancel culture. You can't just cancel it. You can't just say, oh,
1: you watched a did a bad joke. But I and- think what he's done correctly is, I mean, they've come after him with. He's Everything. he's he's said Everything. and he mm-hmm. has said stuff that I would say is offensive, mm-hmm. but he just doesn't care, mm-hmm.
0: which is <laughs> and brave. that's
1: kind of the thing is like you can't mm-hmm. really play into the game of caring too much. We all have sins, we all have things that we're not yeah. proud of, as long as it's not criminal, as long as it's not you hurt someone in a you know mm-hmm. in a terrible way. You can't care.
0: Yeah, absolutely. He always says, don't read the comments, right? <laughs> so never you know what's comments.
1: funny? So I, I do the Daily Hive thing now, right? Yes. And I do the podcast thing. So the podcast, all feedback is always so nice and constructive. And I think it's because people are sitting down with a podcast and they're listening to it for an hour, right? So they're really taking it in and they're absorbing mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And even when I get constructive criticism, it's – cushioned with like, hey, here's what I liked, here's what I didn't like, here's what I thought you could do. Like, It's well thought out stuff. I start doing these daily hive articles (laughs) and you get comments in many different ways. So you get the Twitter comments and then you get the Facebook comments and then you get the comments on the actual article. Like, There's several different avenues for comments as well. And sometimes people will reach out to you directly through DM or email or whatever. And uh, I cannot read the Daily Hive article comments.
0: Why is that? Because just so it's vicious? just,
1: yeah. <laughs> I put out this article, so I, I I interviewed Ian Young, who's the Vancouver correspondent for South China Morning Post, and we talked about Dr. Teresa Tam, and we talked about COVID, and we talked about Asians in Vancouver and what they were doing and how they felt about Tam, and it was a very balanced. Interesting interview. And it was an interesting argument that he was outlining, which was that Tam made some mistakes and the Asian community already picked up on those mistakes. But ultimately she's been doing a good job. Mm-hmm. That was basically his thesis. Very benign. I tried to unpack that argument in my Daily Hive article by saying that, yeah, you can criticize Dr. Tam without being racist. Mm-hmm. Here is, here is what makes it racist. If you're saying these things, and okay. here are the actual more valid criticisms of Tam, and here's why she's actually done a decent job, Wonderful. right? Pretty neutral, balanced. Balanced. <laughs> people who heard the podcast, and all I'm doing is I'm using Ian's arguments. These are. Yes. This is not my yeah, opinion. Yeah. People who heard the podcast loved it. They thought it was amazing. I put this out on the Daily Hive. I am a fucking Nazi. I am a commie. I am a oh, libtard. Wow. I am an apologist for both sides. Like, just all this hate from both sides. Mm -hmm. People DMing me, being like, you should be ashamed of yourself for writing this. And I remember thinking, like, for which side? (laughs) Like, I don't know which side you hate more. And all it was was they weren't reading it. Yep. They saw Dr. Teresa Tam. They saw the word you can criticize or something. And they saw maybe the word racist. And... Uh, they just went off and I could not believe how brutal the comments were. And, and that was the worst example, but certainly in other pieces as well, I, I, the podcast feedback is like, Oh, this was so fun. This was so great. And then the comments feedback is, what is this shit? Who wants to fucking read this? And like, just these mean people (laughs) Mm. who are online and they see it on their Facebook feed and they have to say something mean.
0: Interesting thing that I always thought about that is the fact that I've written, you know, many articles and you never write the headline as a journalist. So your editor or even, you know, the... It's not like this anymore in media, but back in the day, the clickbait, (laughs) you know, authority would write the headline. Um, That is what gets seen on Twitter and that's what gets seen on Facebook. And, you know, a lot of people don't read the article and that's well known now. We kind of know that people comment and if they're going to, you know, the trolls will write something, you know, having never read the article. And there's even jokes where people will write the headline is one thing, but the article concludes the opposite Yeah, <laughs> and people will get mad. So yeah. that is the odd thing about being a journalist behind the scenes going, Oh, I'll actually read the piece and then we'll have a discussion.
1: <laughs> well, and that's the thing. I remember Angela Starrett told me, cause they at CBC they have analytics for how long an article gets looked at. Yeah, And I think she said like, 10 seconds means that's pretty good. 30 seconds means like, oh, my God, it's that's crazy good. And I was like, 10 seconds means good? And she was like, yeah, most people will, for whatever reason, click an article and just not read it. They'll click something else within like five seconds.
0: Yeah. Maybe they're opening a tab to read it later and then they never do. I don't know <laughs> like how it works.
1: The, the numbers were atrociously low. And I was like – But if you have a piece that clearly takes 10 minutes to read, Mm -hmm. you're celebrating (laughs) if the average read time is, you know, a minute. And they're like, yeah, that's huge. A minute is unheard of.
0: You know, I think that almost lends to the the dialogue on journalism today. And, you know, why is it that rather than – Kind of depending on a clickbait model or an advertising model, people are going to, okay, we can't just write flashy, salacious you know pieces or even just really quick pieces. We have to do true investigative journalism. So you see the Atlantic, mm-hmm. you know their subscriptions have increased phenomenally. New York Times has you know, a subscription model and they're actually funding investigations now, same with Boston Globe. and looking at how do you get people to actually read, a high quality piece rather than just depend on these kind of fluffy, quick, you know, 10 minute articles that only, you know, someone is only interested for 30 seconds. So that's all about the lead. How do you get someone pulled in? And that's where you really do need high quality journalists who know how to do great reporting rather than just these, you know, people pumped out of journalism school. Yeah. And you have
1: to reward that work, right? Mm, Eventually you do have to reward those journalists that are doing, uh, yeah. uh, uh, that reporting
0: because you do see the long ones go viral and they are all they're read to the bottom oh, of course. Yeah, <laughs> of course,
1: absolutely. Yeah. You know, in, and I'm, I'm being self referential in a lot of ways because I'm talking about podcasts because this is where I learn all this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not an expert in anything. <laughs> I talked to, I talked to Ed the sock about much music yeah. and he said the shift happened when they brought in business guys to run much as of opposed course. to media people. And what he explained was he's like much, the much music that you and I w- would know from the nineties mm-hmm. was like personality driven. We all had a VJ that we really liked or yeah. we related to it was personally, personality driven. It was really weird. It was surprisingly interactive given the technology at the time, which is generally just phone and fax. There wasn't a ton of email until sort of early, uh, sorry, later nineties and then um, early two thousands, of course. And they created this thing that was really cool and like people like you and I at that age range liked. Then they brought in these business people who mm-hmm. said, you know what? If we ran reruns of fucking Gossip Girl, which are su- super cheap, right? We just need the syndication r- rights. We can make huge profits and huge margins on that. We're not producing our own content it's going to save us a lot of money and we're and 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 we'll our margins will get better what they didn't realize was that people were tuning into much for the much programming and much at one yep. time had a ton of original programming mm-hmm. but they started cutting that all away and putting in these reruns of american shows And then the audience left, right? And then the audience, and and then, and then what are they blaming? Like, and then they go back and saying, well, these, this original programming is too expensive to create, Mm -hmm. even though there was an era where they had that. And if much music had been somehow survived and made it through with what it was doing in the nineties, it would have been this crazy interactive channel with YouTube and Twitch Mm -hmm. and your phone. And like Mm -hmm. they would have been set up to, to be so innovative today, Mm -hmm. but it was having the wrong mindset of profit maximization being ultimate, right? Which ultimately leads to cutting costs, which leads to shitty products.
0: Of course. And you see that with so many, I mean, even looking at, Blockbuster could have been Netflix, but why didn't yeah. they you know <laughs> what did they do? They decided not to go down that route and you look at i mean so many media companies I've worked for the 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 hesitation to change or to you know trust your young employees to spot trends that are coming and that are going to blow up like podcasting or like video online or even you know some media channels took so long to get an Instagram, which is massive. Mm. It's a massive massive. Uh, you know, portfolio of your work essentially. And so when they don't trust the media people to do the job and they're just looking at the bottom line, that's when you die. And that's why, you know, individual podcasters are, are blowing up and, and doing so well. And you get the Joe Rogans who don't have to be scared of anything or anybody yeah. or, you know, anything they say. So
1: it is an interesting balance because I think when you look at all media and media that we watch, so much of it is. Personality driven. Mm -hmm. Right. I like CKW for Linda Steele. I like when Jody Vance is on. I like listening to their voice. It's personality driven for me. Mm -hmm. Joe Rogan as well. You know, I mean, he can you can have the same guest with someone else, Mm -hmm. but I prefer Rogan. It's it's personality driven. And all media, Mm -hmm. I think. Has to, and global does this very well. I mean, even with Sam Cooper, they've created, you know, this person that they keep very well protected in terms of he's only reporting on global stations. He's not doing Mm -hmm. a ton of stuff elsewhere. So you need these personalities. And you need to foster these personalities, which means you also need to pay them well. And that's it. <laughs> but a huge the risk <laughs> is, but of course, the risk is you have to give them some sort of incentive that they will stay there. Uh, otherwise, if they are very big, if they're huge, they might have an incentive to do something on their own. Mm-hmm. But I think because
0: the accessibility to do so is. Yeah. Is, I mean, why do people listen lowered.
1: to FM radio, like just music radio? It has to be the personalities. Mm hmm. There's no other you you have so many other options.
0: Or they're like me and they don't have any music on their iPhone. <laughs>
1: <laughs> maybe maybe I still I don't know I mean that could be it they have an old mm. car
0: but you are right a lot of people are drawn to those personalities for myself I'm more drawn to the content I really I was kind of the opposite with Joe Rogan where I thought oh gosh this guy okay he's got okay. good guests <laughs> so I was more interested in the guests um, which kind of eventually you start to like the guy of course but mm-hmm. the idea of of the con- you know Amy Goodman on Democracy Now is the most flat <laughs> boring voice I've ever yeah. heard
1: Unfortunately.
0: But she has, you know, tremendous guests and content and everything like that. Um, You know, and I think it it, it has to just be catered to, there's multiple media outlets and channels for that reason, right? So it's a, yeah. Could you imagine if
1: Amy Goodman came in with a little bit of like, Personality. <laughs> <laughs> not just enthusiasm. Just, she is very monotone, right? Mm-hmm. And, and maybe some people find that soothing and that's fine.
0: But mm-hmm. um, and
1: I'm certainly not knocking her, but.
0: Absolutely. And I think it's just that she's, she does very, very far left content that draws a certain crowd that is, you know, very far left. So you don't see that really anywhere else. Right.
1: Yeah. But we are starting to get news from different outlets, right? Like people do, some people actually get their news from shows like Last Week Tonight or um, yeah, The Daily Show, mm-hmm. or, or even from that the new internet.
0: fellow Andrew, Andrew Schultz. He has oh, he has a is. very um, kind of Jon Stewart okay. vibe. I'll send you it. He is he's blowing up, but he does these kind of very comical fast. He's a comedian, but also you know, very political. And he has images that flash behind him as he tells these things. Oh, okay, cord- cool. So like it's a house like
1: has kind of the same thing. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Even you look at the Chappelle special that came out. Today. Yeah. I mean, is it, is that a comedy? Is that a comedy special or is that political commentary? Mm-hmm. It's more like mm-hmm. a half hour political commentary monologue, yeah. that, monologue that has yeah. some jokes mm-hmm. in it. Right. Mm-hmm. And, I think people are looking towards that, which I think gives Credits some idea of, like, we still need personalities. We want commentators that have full reign to give interesting opinions. Yeah. Now, where people backlash is against, like, the super old white commentators that just give the same – stale opinions the angry
0: bill o'reilly's thank goodness he's gone (laughs) or the rex
1: murphy's or the don Cherry's, or the jordan peterson's Mm -hmm. like we've just seen that opinion over and over that it's done it only caters to the culturally conservative people that uh, you know wish that things were the way they used to be even though i think there were romanticizing what the past was like
0: yeah yeah which is you see a lot of that um i i know you have to run so i wanted to initially i did want to chat just about kind of you you mentioned the art of conversation and um clearly you're so good at it and i you're too nice (laughs) i'd I'd like to know i guess just your opinions on especially you know it kind of to go back to what we were talking about earlier in, in having really tough, tough conversations and dialogue. And if we are going to be a little bit more open to hearing people, what do you think makes a good listener and a good
1: conversationalist? First and foremost, I think everything has to be in person. <laughs> you no can. More zoom. <laughs> yeah, definitely not zoom. Zoom is the worst. I, we I've been over this, in my podcast many times. There's many reasons why zoom sucks. The phone is still not that bad, but I think the phone is really good for when you already have rapport with someone. You can still have a certain level of intimacy over the phone. When it comes to in-person dialogue, there is something about sitting with someone on a nice day on a patio maybe and having a conversation that goes on for hours. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you get really into it and there's something serious. And then it's like a roller coaster ride, right? And then sometimes you're talking about something lighter and the time kind of just flies away. I think things like body language, eye contact, tonality, these things are really textured in person. Of
0: course. And
1: that's how actually we communicate with each other more than the actual words that come out. So that's oftentimes why you can predict what someone is about to say because of their tonality, because of their body language, because of the way they're looking at you. Mm How that And a lot of this I have learned from the podcast because I'm in there with someone who's effectively a stranger – and I'm trying to get what I think is the best content out of them. And I've had people cry on the podcast. I've cried on the podcast. <laughs> uh, I've had people, you know, get fired up. I've had people, uh, you know, laugh or I've laughed uncontrollably. And so every guest I look at as a bit of a puzzle in terms of how am I going to approach this guest to try to make them comfortable to get the best out of them in terms of what they do. And I think. I genuinely believe, and I'm not saying that I'm any good at it. I'm just saying I genuinely believe that it is an art form. Mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of people in our city and probably in the world that just can't have a good conversation. That if you throw them with 10 different strangers, they're going to be weird with each stranger. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that sucks because I think life is about... (sighs) human connection and conversation is key to that. And it's such uh, I think for me, I take so much joy in being able to talk to so many different people that do different things that I'm obviously a huge advocate for the art of conversation. And sometimes I feel like people get too rational with it. Like, Oh, I need to ask you how you are and how your day is. And like, (laughs) and that's great. And so those are great that's great scaffolding for a conversation. Mm. But sometimes you just have to be vulnerable and and put yourself out there. And and especially when you are in person, you know, we naturally match posture. We naturally match what we're doing with our arms or legs or whatever. And then we naturally match vulnerabilities once you're really into a conversation. So if someone opens up, chances are you're probably going to open up as well,
0: mm-hmm. right, if
1: it's mm-hmm. done in the correct manner. So it's one of those things that I feel like we are losing because we are texting so much, mm-hmm. we're communicating in other ways, we're emailing. I mean, I'm guilty of this too, where in my day job, I will email someone who is in the office <laughs> as opposed to going over there and like, yeah. "Okay, I just do this because mm-hmm. I don't want to get up. I'm lazy.
0: well, there is also you don't want to <laughs> interrupt if they're working on something and they're in a in a mode <laughs> absolutely,
1: absolutely for sure, but my point is like. I hope this is not, even, I mean, you think about dating and I don't know, do people still meet each other at bars? I know they say they do, but I'm like, I have not met anyone who's met someone at a bar recently.
0: Recently, yeah. Maybe at a gym. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A lot of CrossFit.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's a cult, right? (laughs) right? It's easy to meet people when you're in the cult. But, uh, but yeah, Yeah. no, I, I, I worry that we lose this, this ability Mm -hmm. to have great conversations with each other.
0: Absolutely. I like that point because I I remember getting in this very heated debate about the war on terror with this couple who was (laughs) in a hotel lobby. And the woman started out with something like, good God, just drop a bomb on them. And I said, excuse me. (laughs) And then this led into this, you know, at times very heated and we were yelling. But in the end, they go, you you are so, you know, correct on, on so many of these opinions and I never thought about it this way. And, but I, and and I left with having, you know, a little bit more of a, of an understanding of clearly she was thinking she was in a private moment saying that out loud to her husband, (laughs) even though she was in a hotel lobby, but we actually ended up having this this mutual respect and her her husband was a surgeon and he's actually free. he was from the middle east and he ended mm. up explaining certain things and it was a, it was a beautiful conversation, but it never would have happened if that unfolded on Twitter. We would have never walked yeah, away. You would have, with have cursed each other out. And we would have blocked I'm reporting each other. you. No. Blocked and reported. Screenshot of
1: you blocking me. What's yeah. up? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, that's the, that's the problem. Uh, a good conversation doesn't mean you agree on everything. In fact, usually mm-hmm. there's tension in a, in a good conversation, but you walk away from it with a sense of satisfaction. Like it, it's hard. It's even hard to describe, but I know that after a really good podcast recording, I just have like this high. Yeah. That I'm like, oh, that went so well. Oh my God. Like, and especially (laughs) when it's an emo, especially when it's dynamically emotional, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the podcasts that I like recording is ones that, okay, we'll joke around a little bit and then we'll get serious and then we'll get personal. Like I like to mix it up because it's cool to see the multitude of sides of someone. That is a public figure.
0: Of course. Yeah. And especially someone who's been out there, like we started this conversation out with those 20 second sound bites. Yeah. You only know them through that. So then it is neat that uh, I feel like we kind of did a summary of all of your, my favorite ones of your guests. Actually, okay, perfect. Yeah. It'll be a, a nice intro for listeners to go discover this is Van Color. Um, yeah. And if, yeah, if they want to follow you on, you have Instagram, you have Twitter.
1: Yeah, I mean, Twitter is my main social for the podcast. So please follow me at VanColor. You can tweet at me whatever you like. DMs are open. Slide into those DMs. But, you know, be (laughs) kind. (laughs) <laughs> I have and, feelings.
0: And if you read Daily Hive, stop writing. This yeah. Stop and if commenting. you're
1: shit posting on my Daily Hive articles, fuck you, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I work hard on those articles.
0: <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for chatting today. Yeah, you. thank
1: you. It was a lot of fun.